I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 2nd of December. Today, after months of wrangling, Barack Obama sets out his strategy for Afghanistan. I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 US troops to Afghanistan. The number of US troops in Afghanistan is now roughly equivalent to what the Soviets had in the 1980s. Also today, a political crisis in Australia, where the opposition leader Malcolm Turnbull has been deposed because of his views on climate change. And the final ballot was won by Tony Abbott, 42 votes to 41. He has a big challenge ahead of him. I think all Australians wish him well with it. The Metropolitan Police announces the creation of a new team of experienced detectives dedicated to investigating rape cases. Nationally, the police fail in rape investigations. The conviction rate is 6.5%. And after J.D. Witherspoon unveils plans to open 250 new pubs, some of their customers explain their appeal. Cheap and cheerful, me. You've got a nice um, petition for smoking. And you can get a pint in here for 150. You can get a large whiskey for £2.50. You can't knock it. First, here's Bill Overton with the news headlines. Barack Obama's confirmed an extra 30,000 troops are being sent to Afghanistan. They'll arrive within six months to counter what Americans believe is Taliban expansion. NATO says US allies will also be increasing their forces. The president warned Afghanistan to add to its army and police numbers and to root out corruption. But he also said in 18 months US troops would begin to come home. Iran's released the five British sailors who were arrested this week on board a racing yacht on their way to Dubai. State radio said after getting guarantees, Iran released the five. Foreign Secretary David Miliband talked to his Iranian counterpart yesterday evening. The men were being held by the Navy on the island of Siri in the Persian Gulf. They'd allegedly strayed into Iranian waters when the propeller on their yacht broke. Tiger Woods has been told by Florida police to pay a fine of $160 for careless driving after crashing his car at the entrance to his home. He admitted crashing into a fire hydrant in a tree in the early hours of the morning. Meanwhile, a cocktail waitress in Los Angeles has claimed to have had a two-year affair with him. She says she can prove it with 300 text messages. The head of the Climate Research Unit at the University of East Anglia says he'll stand down while a series of confidential emails are being investigated. The leaked emails gave opponents a chance to claim data proving climate change had been manipulated. Dr Phil Jones says those claims of a conspiracy are rubbish. Police officers should be allowed to use common sense when handling minor crimes. This is according to a report for the Home Office by the former chair of the Police Federation. Jan Berry says officers are handcuffed to the rulebook. They should be issued with handheld computers to cut down on paperwork, she argues. Obama's war, the final push, is our paper's headline this morning. Taliban face knockout punch is the Telegraph's version. They report the British will be in a combined assault within weeks in Helmand province. The Financial Times emphasises the surge will be over a defined period of time to ensure that the Allies can stop the momentum of the Taliban. Two of the tabloids, The Sun and The Mirror, lead with the new claims against Tiger Woods. My two-year fling with Tiger headlines The Sun, going on to say the waitress had 20 romps with the golfer. Our paper 
but doesn't cover that part of the story. Uh, reporting simply that Tiger's week worsens as careless driving fine adds to his woes. We say he's seen the shredding of his good boy reputation. And the Express and the Independent are stoking up the dispute over global warming. The Express talks about the big climate change fraud, giving lengthy space to an Australian professor who argues man is not to blame and that claims of global warming are a load of hot air underpinned by fraud as a way of raising taxes. The Independent says David Cameron's being hit by a Tory backlash on environment. It reports leading figures like David Davis and Anne Whittaker in the party are now openly questioning the consensus on climate change. And David Davis writes in the paper to condemn the Tories' green policies. There's more news and sport throughout the day at guardian.co.uk. In one of the most momentous decisions of his presidency, Barack Obama has announced his plans for Afghanistan. In a televised address from the elite US military academy West Point in New York State, the president said there'd be reinforcements. I have determined that it is in our vital national interest to send an additional 30,000 US troops to Afghanistan. After 18 months, our troops will begin to come home. These are the resources that we need to seize the initiative while building the Afghan capacity that can allow for a responsible transition of our forces out of Afghanistan. I do not make this decision lightly. I oppose the war in Iraq precisely because I believe that we must exercise restraint in the use of military force and always consider the long-term consequences of our actions. We have been at war now for eight years at enormous cost in lives and resources. Years of debate over Iraq and terrorism have left our unity on national security issues in tatters and created a highly polarized and partisan backdrop for this effort. And having just experienced the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the American people are understandably focused on rebuilding our economy and putting people to work here at home. Most of all, I know that this decision asks even more of you, a military that, along with your families, has already borne the heaviest of all burdens. As president, I have signed a letter of condolence to the family of each American who gives their life in these wars. I have read the letters from the parents and spouses of those who deployed. I visited our courageous wounded warriors at Walter Reed. I've traveled to Dover to meet the flag-draped caskets of 18 Americans returning home to their final resting place. I see firsthand the terrible wages of war. If I did not think that the security of the United States and the safety of the American people were at stake in Afghanistan, I would gladly order every single one of our troops home tomorrow. So no, I do not make this decision lightly. I make this decision because I am convinced that our security is at stake in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Ewan McCaskill is our Washington correspondent. So Ewan, what's new about the US strategy? Well, this is uh, Obama's second uh, crack at this. In March, he rolled out a new policy for Afghanistan. And some of the uh, substance is basically the same. The main aim is not to engage in nation building in Afghanistan. He presented it to the US public as primarily to uh, defeat al-Qaeda in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border area and to disrupt as much as possible the Taliban. So that is basically the same as March. But what's different is the scale of it. Uh, I think when Obama took over, there were only about 30,000 US troops 
In March, he announced another 21,000, and now we get another 30,000. So the number of US troops in Afghanistan is now roughly equivalent to what the Soviets had in the 1980s. President Obama's been preparing this announcement for months. Its contents have been heavily trailed. Were there any surprises? Well, the biggest surprise in the speech was uh, Obama setting a specific date for withdrawal of uh, US troops from Afghanistan, July 2011. Um, That certainly wasn't expected. I think that was primarily aimed at the US public, which has become increasingly sceptical about the war in Afghanistan and it's affecting uh, Obama's poll ratings. So I think this was a sweetener to the US public on the day that he's announcing, you know, the biggest escalation of US involvement in the Afghan war. He tried to sort of soften it by saying, look, this is only short term. Uh, We're going to start bringing these troops home within sort of 18 months. There's a lot of pressure on Obama over Afghanistan from the right and left. How do you think his announcement will be received? It was a brilliantly delivered speech as usual by Obama but I'm not sure it's going to satisfy uh, many of his critics. And as you say, he, he has uh, problems from both uh, left and right on this. I mean, it was interesting, uh, he, even before he delivered it, uh, people like Dick Cheney and uh, John McCain uh, were jumping up to criticise it. And uh, he, even uh, members of his own sort of Democratic Party. The, the argument from the Republicans, and in particular uh, McCain, were that it was wrong to set a date for withdrawal, that this would just encourage the uh, Taliban. It's a mistake to let your enemy know what you plan to do. The argument of the Democrats, or at least a section of the Democratic Party, and these are members of Congress, was that they wanted Obama to set a date, not just for to begin the withdrawal, but for the complete withdrawal of uh, US troops, and they didn't hear that. So Obama's going to have problems in the uh, months ahead, not least because he has to go to Congress and ask for another sort of 30 billion to uh, fund this. And uh, if he's going to face uh, opposition from both Republican and Democratic uh, members of Congress, then uh, that's a pretty serious hurdle. Ewan, many thanks. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash Afghanistan. Also on The Guardian's website... My name's David Lee. I'm the investigations editor of The Guardian. We're offering a prize today for the first person who can solve what we're calling the Blair mystery. Tony Blair, since he stepped down as Prime Minister, has amassed millions of pounds through a very strange financial structure called Windrush. And all the accountants we've talked to can't understand it at all. So we're asking you to tell us what you think it's all about. And there'll be a Steve Bell cartoon for the winner. That's on guardian.co.uk slash politics. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. I'm outside the Angel in Islington, North London, one of J.D. Weatherspoon's existing pubs. Um, It's just about to open another 250 of them. Um, How is it that Weatherspoon's has managed to buck the recession? Let's find out why people like Weatherspoon's pubs from some of the drinkers there. Excuse me, sir, I'm from The Guardian. I'm just trying to find out why you're at this Weatherspoons pub rather than any of the other quite nice pubs around here. Well, cheap and cheerful, mate. You've got a nice um, petition for smoking outside, you know, you're away from the public, you're in off the street, but you can actually come out and have a cigarette. They serve decent grub in here as well, you know, so... Food's good, yeah. Our food is lovely, you know, man. You can't go wrong, you know, for the price, you know. Great. Thank you very much. That's lovely, thanks. Mind me asking you, sir, why you choose this Weatherspoons pubs rather than some of the other nice pubs around here? 
because it's cheap. <laughs> it's not just cheap though, it's quite no. decent food and beer. And no, de- decent food and beer and the staff are nice in here. Yeah. Makes a change from some Weatherspoons, I must stress, but uh, <laughs> they know what you drink and know what sort of glass you like it in. How does this pub compare with some of the other pubs around here? Well, other pubs around here, non-Weatherspoons pubs, tends to tend to be expensive. And, um, you know, when you consider you pay nearly £3 a pint, and you can get a pint in here for one fifty. You can get a large whiskey for two pounds fifty. You can't knock it. Sorry, I hope you don't mind me asking. I'm from the Guardian. I'm just trying to find out why people, uh, why you, you guys are choosing this Weatherspoons pub rather than some of the other pubs around here. Uh, because you can sit outside and have a cigarette. Yeah. Well, can you, can you not do that in some of the other pubs? Uh, this one's cheaper. Um, Weatherspoons is opening another 250 pubs around the UK. At the time of the recession, a lot of pubs are closing down, a lot of pubs owned by other companies. It doesn't surprise you that they're opening so many new pubs? It's a question of supply and demand, isn't it? Yeah. If you can bring something to a person that's cheaper, but this Weatherspoons are cheaper than a lot of other pubs, that's hence their popularity. So, is Weatherspoons' expansion good news for drinkers? Ian Lowe is from the Campaign for Real Ale. It does seem to be quite a, a large jump. Basically, there is about a 33% increase in their pub estate. And one wonders whether they'll be able to find enough very good managers to run their pubs. Some Weatherspoons pubs are excellent, some aren't as good. Quite a few of them are in our Good Beer Guide, but others aren't. And they really rely on having excellent managers, deputy managers, and the rest of the staff. And whether they can find enough really good people to run another 250 pubs, well, that's a very big question mark. And I think success or failure will be very dependent on them finding the right people. When Weatherspoon's expansion is complete, uh, this wave of expansion, it will have a thousand pubs in the UK. What effect does that dominance of the market have on smaller pubs? Well, certainly they do have an effect in an area where Weatherspoon's come in that certainly does increase price competition. But price isn't everything. And um, I think other operators can survive as long as they can offer... A good welcome, um, value for money, yes, but also quality beers and other food offerings as well. And I've been into quite a few towns around the country where Weatherspoons are there, and they're not actually um, driving out the other pubs because they've actually raised their game. They're offering, offering value for money. So I think they can actually help stimulate um, trade, competition, and quality. Um, but it varies from place to place. But I think they're obviously in places like London, there are lots of pubs. But if they move into a small place like Torquay or St. Austell, um, then I think they will probably shake up the other pubs around there. And those, those other pubs have got to be really switched on, really up to the mark, offering value for money, and rather than just um, sit back and say, oh, we can't compete. Because you can compete with Weatherspoons. Weatherspoons pubs are big. They're impersonal. They offer value for money. But unless the staff are really, really good, the customers there probably don't have that same sort of relationship as they can have in a smaller pub where when, everyone walks, when you walk in through the door, you're welcomed by name and you feel at home. It's just like the old cliche in Cheers, the, the old TV soap, that everyone knows your name. I think that's the sort of thing that a smaller pub can do to compete with Weatherspoons. Ian Lowe from Camera. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, global warming claims a political scalp in Australia. They've just chosen uh, Tony Abbott 
And he's on record as describing climate change as absolute crap in a speech not long ago. But first, the Metropolitan Police is setting up the world's biggest unit dedicated to investigating rape cases. The £21 million Scotland Yard team will comprise more than 400 officers who will be based in the force's specialist crime wing. Our crime correspondent, Sandra Laville, says the police have a poor record in prosecuting rapists and sex offenders. Well, nationally, the police fail in rape investigations. The conviction rate is 6.5%. The attrition of cases from arrest to criminal courts is huge. And it's, it's not just a Met thing, it's across the country. There are issues with rape, rape inquiries in that often it's one person's word against the other with very little evidence. But what is the most shocking is that these cases that have failed have been serial attackers, stranger rapists, where there's been DNA evidence and a huge amounts of intelligence. And yet police officers have failed to listen to victims, simply not believe victims in some cases and not taken the claim seriously. So what difference will a dedicated team have in these investigations? Well, this dedicated team comes within a specialist command unit, which it's all experienced detectives. And what they hope is, as well as being victim-led, the key to successful prosecution is a good investigation. And that's what they've failed to do in the past. So what, what they want to do is put experienced detectives on cases to concentrate all their energies and efforts on rape and sexual offences and to set up, for the first time ever in this country, an intelligence unit dedicated to rape investigations to support those officers. And they'll be using techniques used in the investigation of terrorism and organised crime. How can the policing uh, of these different offences inform their investigation of rape cases? Well, they'll be using all the intelligence techniques, covert policing, surveillance, bugging in some cases, and they'll have to apply for permission to do that. But often what they'll do, what's happened in the past, is that there have been a series of rapes perhaps in a particular area which the intelligence just hasn't been put together. So what they hope is that this unit, they might even identify cases which are linked and which people haven't realised are linked and then they'll send officers out to find suspects and then they will put those suspects under surveillance in some cases, gather evidence against them and and operate like that. And yes, it is similar to anti-terrorist operations and that is a marker of how they say they now are treating the the issue more seriously and critics would say about time too. Sandra Laville. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. In Australia, the Prime Minister Kevin Rudd agreed a deal with the opposition leader Malcolm Turnbull a week ago. It would have allowed him to go to the UN summit in Copenhagen with a pledge to reduce emissions. Responding to uh, climate change will be the great challenge uh, for this generation. Uh, If we do not rise to the challenge, what we'll end up doing is condemning future generations of Australians to live with the consequences of our failure. But now Rudd will have to go empty-handed. He's considering a general election after the opposition Liberal Party voted to oust Turnbull and install Tony Abbott, a climate change sceptic. Unless we are confident that a piece of legislation uh, is beyond reasonable doubt uh, in the national interest, it is our duty as the opposition uh, to vote it down. Now, um, as leader, um, I am not frightened of an election. uh, And I am not frightened of an election on this issue. 
I really am not frightened of an election on this issue. The Guardian's Julian Glover says Turnbull's become a political victim of global warming. Normally, a row inside an opposition party in a country a long way from Britain wouldn't really be world news. And, and, and the Liberal Party, Australia's main opposition, has actually overthrown its leader once before in this parliament already. What's different this time is that it's a crisis about climate change. And in a way, if you want to push the boat out, you could say this is the world's first climate change political crisis in, in a developed country. Because Malcolm Turnbull, the guy that has been usurped as Liberal leader, he was um, going to adopt uh, a consensus position with the Prime Minister ahead of the Copenhagen summit. That's right. I mean, there's some, there's some background to this. Australia is the world's biggest per capita carbon emitter of any developed country. So uh, Australia has a lot of ground to make up. Even the Australian Labour government underneath uh, Kevin Rudd, the Prime Minister, is pretty cautious in, in the action it's promising to take. So Australia, compared to where we are in Europe or, or um, even bits of uh, China and, and bits of America, has a long way to go. They like driving big cars and they like flying planes. Um, nonetheless, Kevin Rudd, the Prime Minister, put forward a, a plan for a carbon trading scheme, a bit like the one in Europe. Um, it's gone to Parliament. It's in the Senate, the upper house this week. He doesn't have a majority there, so he needs some Liberal support. Now, Malcolm Turnbull, who's a fascinating man and, and was the leader of the Liberal Party and had been Environment Minister in the government before, he backed the plan. He tried to get his senators to support the government, pass this legislation, and instead his party threw him out. And they've just chosen uh, Tony Abbott, a pretty right-wing uh, new uh, member of the Shadow Cabinet. He's now, now the leader of the party. And he's on record as describing climate change as absolute crap in a speech not long ago. He now <laughs> says it's a bit more subtle than that, and he sort of vaguely accepts that there might be such a thing, but he's not quite sure whether the science is settled. But really the sceptics have taken over, and that's bad news for Australia and possibly bad news for a, a world deal. What options are now open to the Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd? Well, what will probably happen is, having had the first climate change crisis, we'll now get the first climate change election, um, in which the two parties will go into the campaign, uh, probably the Prime Minister will call one early next year, and he'll have what Australians call a double dissolution. So there'll be a dissolution of the lower house and also of the Senate, so Australians can vote really to refresh Parliament. And that campaign will partly be fought on the idea of climate change, and the Liberal Party says it's not about climate change, it's about a big tax on fuel, pushing up fuel prices, and Australians don't want that. Um, polls suggest Labour will win, Kevin Rudd's quite popular, but uh, maybe climate change will, will put him under a bit of pressure there. Julian Glover. Guardian Daily was produced today by Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening. <laughs>